Welcome to Exodus. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy. Tonight we're starting Matthew chapter 15, and what we're going to do is we're going to cover the first two-thirds of, we're going to try and cover the first two-thirds of Matthew 15. The road map, chapter 13, where we've been before, we've been talking about a lot of parables. Uh, Chapter 14, last week, we did Jesus walking on the water, feeding of the 5,000. In fact, the last part of chapter 15 is another feeding uh, of the 4,000, I think, which is, and we probably won't get to that tonight. But. And tonight, we're going to talk about a couple of ideas. The first one is tradition and belief. The, the first part of chapter 15 deals with a qu the question of tradition. And the second thing that we're going to talk about tonight is the Canaanite woman. And the Canaanite woman story is really interesting because it's one of only two stories in the entire Gospels where Jesus heals someone remotely, where he says, oh yeah, that, your, your faith has healed that person and he doesn't even see them, but she goes home and her daughter's healed. So we'll have a chance to talk about tonight, that tonight. There's a lot of interesting things in there. Okay, I thought we'd just start off by reading Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. So if you have your Bible, feel free to read along. If not, you're a slacker. <laughs> then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now stop there. The tradition of the elders simply refers to the uh, laws the rabbinical laws that were written or spoken about on top of the law of Moses. So it's the addition to the law. And they say, they, uh, for they do not wash their hands before they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that whoever tells father or mother whatever support you might have had from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the Father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God, you hypocrites. Let's get into this really quick, because it sounds really complicated, but it's, it's really not. Um, what is the problem? What are the Pharisees accusing the disciples of doing? Not washing their hands. So breaking, yeah, breaking tradition. Why did that matter, by the way? What's the point to the traditions? What, what other traditions were they not allowed to do? Eat pork. Uh, could they touch people who were sick? Right. Could they interact with Gentiles? No. Okay. So the Pharisees, uh, they think they have an aha moment. Here we've got Jesus, and we're going to get him and his disciples. And he responds by saying, well, wait a minute. You don't really understand the point of tradition. Now, what does he quote here? He says, you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. Basically what he says is, you guys are supposed to take care of your parents and you're not doing it. What the Pharisees were allowing people to do is say, um, you know, mom and dad, I'm sorry, I, I can't really take care of you because I've got to give this money to God. Okay? And they were actually authorizing that. Okay? Now, Jesus calls them on this and says, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're... You're picking on my disciples and not washing their hands, and you're basically throwing your mom and dad on the street. And he, he says this and says, look, you're doing this for the sake of tradition. And then he quotes down here from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, 
In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. My question, to get us started tonight, is what's the role of tradition? How does tradition work in our lives? What does it mean to, what does it mean to us? Well, it just seems like in the sake of chasing tradition, they've perverted one of the greater commandments and flipped it on its head. So, so it seems like when you're asking what is tradition, at the very least, he's making a contrast between, look what tradition does. It takes even one of the laws that we gave and somehow kills it with this tradition. So in one case, tradition, he's at least seems to be making an illusion that it might actually pervert the very law itself that's greater than the tradition. Okay, so we have... Yeah, we have the honor your father and mother, right? Which is one of the commandments. And again, as John is rightly pointing out, they've added the, the second layer of tradition, right? They've added the second law. If you're giving your money away to some other thing for God, then you don't have to give it to your mom and dad. So you see how they've, they've layered that? Well, and the question is, do we do the same thing? So do we have tradition in our church? Do we have tradition in our own lives? What is it? But not, they're not things that we consider like equal to law that I can think of. Like, I know they exist, but I just can't think of anything. Like. Do, we, do we add things? Do we do things that you, may, you might not necessarily find somewhere in Scripture? Are there actions that we ritually perform? And do we expect other people to do them? That's also kind of the question I'm asking here. Are there, are there things that we do? Yeah. Like bow your head and close your eyes and pray. Okay. Bow your head, close your eyes and pray. Ask your hands together. Yes. Yeah, in fact, that's how we used to teach the kids at the Christian school, is to put your hands together and bow your heads and pray. And, and like all the first, first and fifth graders would ritually do this whenever we'd ask someone to pray. It was really quite interesting to watch. They would all do this. Let me ask you this. Do we have any reason to do that? I mean, in terms of a commandment, do we have any reason to do that? To block out distractions, I guess. You probably started that or reverence, like bowing your head out of reverence and closing your eyes to block out distractions and speak to God. Okay, so we could probably give a reason as to why we do it, to be reverent, to, to block distraction, but is there a specific scripture we can point to that says when you pray, bow your heads, close your eyes, and clasp your hands? My question then is, is all tradition bad? Um, I don't think it's so much of, is something good or something bad? I think it's more of certain traditions are empty. Like sometimes people will just do them because it's been something that they're accustomed to do. Like, in, in like, um, in particular, the whole folding hands, it's like we're accustomed to do this. It's not a bad thing or it's not a good thing. But then there are also those traditions that, you know, that might be good that, you know, that are in the church, like whether it is, you know, closing your eyes or, you know, lifting your hands up like in a song. Like it's not, some, some of them are might be your response, but it's like a traditional type of response and, or it's a traditional type of action that you do or reaction or something. Has anyone here ever been to a uh, church that's outside of what they're normally used to going to? What's your experience there? I went to a Catholic church one time when they were having communion. And like, you know, when the guy hands you a little communion stuff, I said, thank you. And you're supposed to say something. And like, people I went with got off the bears. Actually, I've known that feeling before, though, when you're not quite sure what to do. And you're like, hey, what, am I, what do I do here? <laughs> What I want to point out, by the way, is that I don't. So oftentimes, I think this verse and verses like it are used to point out or to say tradition's bad. Get rid of it. What I wanted to highlight, and I think has come out, is there is a difference between good tradition, maybe, and bad tradition, if you want to call you that. We just listed things that we do, 
we, we, we bow our heads and we pray. Well, we sing a certain way. We have certain expectations of what to do when we go to church, and I don't necessarily think those are bad, and I don't think that you necessarily throw those away. But you can see how a verse like this could be taken out of some kind of context, and someone could just run wild and say, no tradition. Okay? It's interesting that when they charge him of violating tradition, he responds by giving tradition. Right? Honor your father and mother. It's a part of the tradition. It's part of the language. They would have, the Pharisees would have been in tune with that. It's not like he pulled it out of left field. But at the same time, he still critiques their opinion on it. And down at the bottom, he quotes from Isaiah. I think the last part about teaching human precepts as doctrines is really interesting because that's when tradition kind of becomes bad when we believe it to the point where it becomes like, you know, something that divides us. But it divides us and it becomes a doctrine that divides and not something that unites us. You know, what's really interesting, too, is sometimes it's hard to see the difference between tradition and doctrine, especially in this community. This might just be a function of the English language, but a lot of times what was tradition was also theological. But how do we even make doctrine? Why, why is doctrine so important to us? Why do, we, why do our churches split over this? Phil? I think it's like the difference between tradition and doctrine, like it is very tricky. It's this whole idea of like teaching human precepts as doctrines because whatever God has commanded us to do, whatever that is, like, I mean, we have to interpret it as humans. And so there's a strange concept of that this group of people have precepts or understandings of it being this, and this group of people have precepts or understandings of it being this. And so, like, tradition is sort of like things, I feel like maybe we can define it as actions that we're taking that aren't necessarily based uh, off of a command, but off of like a good habit or a good practice to be doing something to maybe lead us more towards something. So doctrine's important because it sort of gives it more of a guideline of how we should be acting, where traditions are more sort of a way to help us get there. Yeah, perhaps a, a way to rephrase your question is, um, I may be incorrect, is how do we know when a doctrine's too human? Like, where's the line between someone saying, my doctrine is, you might hear the word, biblically based, or my doctrine is this, right, or it's in the tradition of this. How do we know when those things have crossed the boundary into, well, no, I really just have an agenda, and now I'm just going to say it's doctrinal? And I, that's a hard question. Monique? Test it against scripture, or try to find it. If you can't find it anywhere, that's probably not a good sign, but try to test it against scripture, but then like Phil was saying, it still comes down to sort of our human interpretation. You hope that you're getting it right by consulting maybe different sources, or if you have to go into the origin of like the language, or the Hebrew, the Greek, whatever, like hopefully you're trying to get close to like the intended meaning, but we're still just human, so. Right. It's an interesting concept because um, Paul talks about it where it's like, hey, you know what, you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that's like, there's a fundamental basis, obviously, of the belief uh, in, in Jesus Christ. But then he also says, like, don't bicker amongst yourselves, like, with the little things, you know, as far as, like, what you were talking about with denominations and stuff like that. But with traditions, it's kind of weird because I have, I have a Catholic friend who's, like, who's been studying for years, and he's actually studying to become a priest, and he's very, very holds true to a lot of the traditional things within the Catholic Church and what they do 
and I look at that and I go, wow, that's kind of pretty extreme, you know, for every little thing that you have to do. But he looks at me and goes, you know what, you're too liberal. Like, you're just, you know, me liberal. Yeah, is it really? No, it's, <laughs> you guys don't take it seriously enough, you know? Like, all you think is, oh, believe in Jesus and try to help people and that's it. There's all these other things. So it's kind of, I still think even nowadays there's still that tension of, of the traditional and, and the non, you know. But. Ryan makes a great point, and we're actually going to get into that in a second, because the story of the Canaanite woman asks that question. The Canaanite woman, she's not Jewish, she has no traditional connection, she has no cultural ties, nothing, right? In fact, when we get to it, you'll see Jesus ignores her, but she still believes so much in him, okay, that, she, that, that he ends up healing her daughter. Good, so we're going we're gonna to get to that just in a second. I'd like to say, just before we move on, if there are no other comments, that this is a very difficult question, the one I've asked, because like Monique said, well, maybe we can test it against Scripture. Well, yes, probably if someone's saying, uh, I don't know, something that absolutely cannot be found anywhere in Scripture, then we might just say, yeah, okay, fine. You're crazy. You go over there. But a lot of times we have... <laughs> I, think you, I really think you could say that sometimes. You just, okay, I don't even know what you're talking about. But a lot of other things, people really believe they've got reason to think it scriptural reasons. And so it does come down to really fundamental differences. And the question is, what do you do in situations like that? That's something that I think at least we should be aware of. Yes, John? I think the early church struggled with the same thing. Like there were a lot of things that were in scripture and then there were some things that were foundational or essential. So they tried to summarize them into creeds. Like not to say this is all there is to the belief, but that these are the essentials. Of course, there's many creeds, there's many things, but the point I'm trying to make is even the early church identified that there are some things that are essential, and we'll try to put those in creeds, and that really should be the thing that defines us, and the other things that we find in Scripture or not, whether we agree with them or we continue to disagree, they shouldn't divide us, and we should at least, we should only divide if it ever crossed one of the absolute essentials that, so even if it was found in Scripture, I think you shouldn't divide on it unless it was one of those things that, like, now you're talking about a different religion. Like, if you just said, no, Jesus didn't die, or he wasn't resurrected, or, you know, something like that, and you say, okay, now we're just a different religion. But anything else, even if you could argue it from Scripture, shouldn't divide us. We need to have John mediate the divide right now in the Episcopal Church, right, over the... This is going to become a big issue for them. For those who don't know, the Episcopal Church, which is the American branch of the Anglican Church, has decided to um, ordain uh, practicing homosexuals as priests. Or they're moving in that direction quite strongly. So this will actually, this will unfold right in front of us. I mean, the core belief in Christ is not changed, but there's a, a human level, right, of theology that is going to be very complicated. So we'll see what happens anyways. Okay, moving on. So keep that in mind again. And um, here we go, Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. Okay, then Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, listen and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. What is he making a reference back to? We just read it. What were the disciples accused of doing? Not washing their hands. Okay? So do you see the connection he's making here? Now he's going to give us like a little mini sermon on this. Okay, so back to the text. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense? when they heard what you said. Why would they take offense? It's not what goes into your mouth. Why would that upset a Pharisee? 
Now, how many dietary laws were there? You guys know what it means to be kosher, right? Yeah. yeah. Can, you, can you sense the, the tension in the room as Jesus is speaking this? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. He says, leave them alone. So many times, like, I can't leave it alone. Like, if I ever really disagree with someone, like, that just makes me more irritated. Like, I have to, I have to tell them that they're wrong in a nice way, a loving way. Because <laughs> you know I'm a very loving person. <laughs> we'll edit the laughing out, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, this seems pretty self-explanatory. But by the way, we've just gone through all those parables, right? And after half the parables, Peter or one of the disciples says, can you please explain it? Okay, Peter says, explain this parable to us. So he says, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach, this is a very polite way, and goes out into the sewer? That's a very nice translation. So what goes in comes out. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. So he's pointing out a problem. He says, look, to the Pharisees especially, what you put in your mouth, that's not what defiles you. You think it does. And in fact, you've built an entire system around it. But it's what actually comes out, and specifically the source from the heart, that defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Okay, so he's making the connection to the earlier comment from the Pharisees. It's, it's not about what you eat or maybe even how you eat it. It's the uh, same thing in the scriptures, right, where it says with your tongue, right, you say you, you bless people and you, you curse them. Okay. So, yeah, Phil. Verse 13, the, where he answers the disciples originally, he says he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. I, I feel like it's more, like, especially since it's directly, he's talking about this, like, tradition and doctrine difference. It has something to do with that, especially since they're responding, they're responding to the, or the disciples, saying the Pharisees would take offense. Um, and sort of saying, like, God has planted um, at least some established rules or commands, but there's other rules and commands and traditions that have been set up that weren't established by God. Um, and th that's the only thing that God is just is going to get rid of them someday, eventually. Like, that's my guess, but it just seems sort of like he says it and he goes on, so I'm not sure. Is he talking about the Pharisees themselves? Yeah, um, position of power. Going back to some of the other parables that we talked about. I would say that in this specific verse that the blind guides probably refers to the Pharisees, but still the question that Phil asks is interesting because the Pharisees would have certainly seen themselves as the, not the blind, but as the, the ones with great vision and with understanding. And remember, prior to Christ, this was the tradition that had been around for centuries. So, again, what do you do? I mean, you, here you have the, the people, the very people, the priests, who are supposed to be the leaders and the ones providing vision, and here Jesus is saying, no, they're actually blind. Yeah. Going back to Philip's question, 
about the planting. I think Ben's right um, that the parable of the weeds that was told was where Jesus says that the that the wheat was from God. They were the sons of the kingdom, and then there were the weeds that were the bad things, you know. And I think since Matthew wrote both, it's probably a really good connection to make that is every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted as a reference back to the same parable that came before, where at the end of the age the weeds are uprooted, right? So he is kind of saying that about the Pharisees. It's not about the tradition, it's actually about the Pharisees himself. The same thing with the blind guides. I mean, later he's going to have a passage about the healing of the blind man where he says to the Pharisees, because you say we see, you are identifying that you're really blind. So I think because it's all encompassed in Matthew, that's probably a good connection. I would agree, and I would just add that I think we, at the same time, while we, uh, for example, we take one of the parables, right? And if Jesus is talking to the disciples, we don't want to say, well, that parable or that lesson was just for the disciples. It's okay, right? We have the idea that somehow God um, planted the Pharisees, right? Good and bad. But we wonder, well, was he talking just about the Pharisees, or is that true of all people? And so that's really, I think, certainly something to think about. And have you ever wondered if you're one of the good ones or bad ones? Maybe I only wonder that. All right. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 21, or 15, verses 21 to 28. Okay, we're going to read through the story, and there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. Now notice Jesus' pious and holy response. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's tables. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Anybody troubled? Monique. Uh, I'm really troubled by the part where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Feels like that's fine. What's that? So he basically calls her a dog. He definitely makes the analogy, right? I mean, the analogy being you would only give the scraps of food to your dogs. And, but she, she seems to be okay with that even, right? She was so, fine. Even the dogs will eat the crumbs. I'll do the same thing. That would be like a known social thing for the time. Like she knows where her position in society is and she knows. But he came only for the sheep, like the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That like goes against everything we think of Christ that he came for all. Like, first for the Jew, yes, but then for the Gentile, so I don't understand. By the way, who formulates that the best? Paul, right? Paul is one who formulates the first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But, again, what book of the Bible are we in? Matthew. And most scholars think that Matthew is written for, okay, so if it's true that Matthew has an interest, at least in, in uh, retelling the story for a Jewish audience, then it's likely he would have told it in such a way. Now, let me say, by the way, I'm not suggesting that just because it was written by uh, someone who was writing for a Jewish audience, 
that we can just say, okay, check. Yeah, that's why that's in there. I'm not, I'm not writing this off as just a literary function, but I, I mean, that, that's definitely uh, troublesome. I understand, like, trouble with it. I, I'm not I have a solution for it in any way, but I think it's interesting because even his response is that way. Like, yeah, I've sent only to Washington of Israel. Like, she's begging him, but he still says, like, no, like, basically, you don't deserve it. And then she still begs him, and he heals her, like, or heals her daughter. Like, and so there's an aspect which, even, even though, like, this says, like, hey, like, he was not sent to help them. Like, he still did. Right. And so there's no, which I think, like, my thought is it's sort of his focus was, like, like I was sent to, for these people, like, and, yeah, like, other people are included, but he wasn't going around, like, trying to convert all the Gentiles most of the time. You know, like, it wasn't what his focus was while he was there. Could it be that, like, pre-death and post-death are two different functions? We touched on this a couple of weeks ago about the question of, about, well, Jesus is still alive at this point in the story, so, you know, does that change how we might reflect on this text? And, but again, that, that's a great question, but for the topic tonight, it's John. I think it is, though, an interesting question. That I was sent, we assume right away that that means that all of our understanding of Christ post-resurrection is summed up in the I was sent. It could just mean that his earthly ministry is limited to Israel. That's number one. And I think number two, I think he's testing her. I think he's trying to be provocative here. Because later on, we have the encounter with the Samaritan woman. And that's clearly not. I mean, he actually goes out of his way, and they preach to the Samaritan towns. And that's not Israel. So I don't even think that, that Jesus really means that. I think he's really testing to see whether she would actually go away, or whether she's got what it takes to kind of be persistent enough in her faith to get the healing that she's really come for. Um, I feel like he would have had people shouting after him all the time, like he's not a genie. And I think maybe even a little bit of righteous indignation if we assign that and just say, okay, prove that you know who I am, prove that you care enough to pursue this and just aren't looking for it easy, easy out. I think it's interesting in the sense if he's trying to be provocative, it doesn't really seem to have an impact on her. She's going to ask him regardless of what he says to her. That's, that's more the impression I get. Well, let's, let's think about what are the, what's happened just prior to this verse. Who has he been uh, chastising? Pharisees. Pharisees. For what? Okay. And then we've got, now we've got this story of someone who's not a part of what? He's not, she's not a part of any tradition, right? So you can see how there might be a reason as to why the author or, or the author of Matthew perhaps put these two or put these texts together. The beginning of chapter 15 is him really talking about tradition and, and telling them they don't understand tradition. And now he's coming back and there's an example of someone here who doesn't understand tradition at all. But guess what? They get it. Yeah, they have the right heart. Look how he's connecting it back, right? He says, it's not what you take in that defiles you. It's, it's the motivations from your heart. Well, what does she have? Well, she has the motivation from the heart. And if you were a first century Jew or a recent convert or somebody who might be reading this text or hearing this text, that might be provocative even for you to hear. To hear the first part of that, well, Jesus, what, what do you mean from the heart? And then here comes a Canaanite woman who, from the heart, Right, believes. Yeah, Randy. 
Do you think maybe too it's because the disciples like right before that said send her away like he was like saying that in front of them so they could see the faith of like even the people who weren't Jewish and see it for everybody, not just for them? Because of possibility, I mean they I I get the impression from this text that they're uncomfortable from by her. They're I don't know if they're embarrassed, but they're definitely, hey, get get her out of here. <laughs> she's you know, she's bothering us. Here. I think it's interesting how in certain examples, um, you know, Jesus says, Oh, you know, your faith has made you well, like your faith has healed you, great is your faith. But he always talks to them or tests their faith first. But it's interesting because I wonder if you can actually like see our faith. Like we have like a faithometer, you know, and he's like, Oh, or if or like how It gets higher when you're singing. You know, you know. Or, 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 <laughs> It's just kind of interesting to go, okay, cool, like they ask for something, but then like he doesn't deliberately just do it. He has to challenge them with their faith, with something, and they have to kind of answer back. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about as I was listening, uh, there is the question that we might ask here. At the end of the day, it seems the Gentiles ended up wanting this more than the, the people he came to save. So that is an interesting thing to think of. Monique? realized how powerful this is till we really broke it apart like just this whole story and I've read it like so many times but it's just interesting to me that like the Jews supposedly are like the chosen people and Christ was their Messiah and they're sort of waiting for this whether they recognize it or not and I just think two things are interesting the humility that she would want even the crumbs from Christ like even the outskirts any part of God like to realize how awesome he is the humility she had but also that the crumbs were enough for the Gentiles, so it's like even if you're not the chosen people, it's like even the crumbs were fully sufficient and enough for anyone, like the crumbs of God, I guess. I don't know. Interesting. Cool. I, mean, I sort of understand, but also still I take it insultingly, because regardless of the idea that he was his focus was on like the Jewish people, he, he establishes like at least his analogy of like yeah, like the Jewish people, like, like children, like you're just the dogs and. She goes along with that analogy, and he has no problem with that. He says that's good. A, a 21st century um, educated male, right, should take offense at this. But again, that's not the circumstance. This author is operating in Palestine in the first century. I think one of my like, problems with it is it's an idea that God values the Gentiles less. Because really, like, regardless of how you put it, whether she took it insultingly or not, like, it makes it pretty clear that he views her as less valuable or less important or less stature or whatever because of her non-Jewishness than the Jews and she accepts that. I have, I have a potential, not a response, but perhaps another way of looking at it that might appease you, Ben. Uh, it, it also, almost as a counterpoint to that thought, is that it's easier for the Gentiles to get Jesus because they're not caught up in the traditions that are tripping up the Pharisees. They have all these things, they're like, what the heck is he doing? She doesn't have any of that. She recognizes she doesn't have any of it. And it makes it easier for her because she comes in already with the knowledge of not deserving. Well, maybe put it this way. Jesus responds to the Pharisees in what way? By quoting what? Tradition. Uh, how does Jesus respond to the rich young ruler when he, when he asks, what you know, I follow all the commandments. He responds by saying what? He re refers to uh, commandments, right? He refers to the tradition. Would it be appropriate for Jesus to respond to her in the same way? No, and I, I think that's interesting. And I think that shows something about the way that Jesus interacts 
not just with us right now, but even how Jesus apparently interacts with different people. But isn't it tradition that he would ignore her at first? Social tradition? She's a Canaanite woman. Sure, but we also know that in the ministry of Jesus, he had women, right? Um, he touched lepers. All these things that he wasn't supposed to do. Yeah, Ben? It's also possible that without, because we as, for the most part, Gentiles don't have the cultural ingrained context that the Pharisees would have, we take offense at what he says to the Gentile woman, which is offensive to us, but we can't necessarily put a value statement that it's less offensive than what he says to the Pharisees within their context. Let me ask you this. How does Jesus ultimately respond to her? By following tradition or by following his heart? By following his heart, right? Another connection you might make to the point that's being made here, or at least the point that was made earlier when Jesus criticizes them for not following their heart. Sure, in this culture, Jesus could have walked away and nobody would have said anything about it. In fact, probably the Pharisees would have liked him more, but he doesn't. John. Jesus often was impressed by the faith of those who went, be, who just were persistent. Like the centurion who said, no, you don't have to come to my house, just say the word. He was impressed by that. The people that opened up the roof and dropped down their friend, he was impressed by that. He would often cite that he would say, I haven't found faith like this. I think this is kind of a similar theme. Like, he's saying, like, he's given her every reason he's not going to do it, and she's persistent. Like, I was only sent to Israel. I don't know that, that he even believes it or doesn't, but let's say it's, he says it. She doesn't go away. He makes an analogy to children and dogs. He doesn't actually say, you're a dog. He makes an analogy to it, and she still doesn't go away. Like, he just keeps saying no in all these ways. She's already bothered disciples. He's already, he's already ignored her. And the more and more she's persistent, the more and more he finally says, you know what? I am impressed by this faith. And he does it. It reminds us of that widow that kept hugging the judge. I mean, all these themes are common to Jesus, who's constantly impressed by people who are tenacious. I think we should also keep in mind how paradoxical it is that Jesus, again, Jesus makes a statement, right, about coming for the house of Israel. And I don't think that we can just pass that over. I mean, I think he means it when he says that. But it is paradoxical, especially in light of what John says, that he comes for them, right, but he's most impressed by the people who aren't a part of it. And again, I think that in the context of the verses that we read prior to this, again, just reading in context, you can see some of the points that not just the author of Matthew, but Jesus is trying to make here. He's demonstrating on some level what it means to respond to someone from the heart. I think you're probably right. I mean, Jesus, not only is Jesus provocative to the Jews, but these types of things are, are still provocative to us today. It's interesting because I, I think, like, during this time, too, the Jews, um, or as far as tradition goes, they believe themselves to be better and entitled to more than the Gentiles or, or the whatever, um, the Canaanite woman, you know? And so that's why, you know, with the whole offensive thing, I can kind of understand that, but it's like at the same time, like, all in all, like, we're not really supposed to be entitled to anything. Like, you know, we're not worthy. So it's like just the fact that God would even consider us a dog would be kind of a privilege, you know? I mean, if you really want to look at it that way, I don't Everybody heard that, Ryan's okay being called a dog. So, by God. <laughs> oh, by God. <laughs> Thank you for the... <laughs> Monique. Uh, kind of sort of along the lines of what I was going to say. Like, I don't think that Jesus valued her less. And I also don't think he was testing her. 
I think Christ knew her faith and went out to make a point on tradition. Like he gave every reason why tradition would exclude her and like really made a point like, look, on this basis, this basis, and this basis, and based on the law, the things I have said are correct based on the law. But she still had more faith in you and I'm gonna heal her. And I just think that he like was making a point and he knew her faith and so he used her as an example against tradition. I don't necessarily know that or think that what you and John you're looking at it from a different perspective, right? What I hear from John is, please correct me if I'm wrong, is, a, is an emphasis on Jesus, right? And Jesus' action here. And what I hear from Monique is what the woman is doing, right? And her response. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the same perspective or the same view. But I think it's just important for us to keep that in mind. But you, you can see how different you might think from somebody. Just what are you more interested in? The woman's story or Jesus' story? Are you more interested like in the context of it, you know, and, and connecting theological ideas, or more interested in maybe what is being experienced here, or how you might experience it? I just wanted to point that out, that it's, it's, it's actually interesting to be up here watching it going on. Okay? A couple of last questions just for us to um, connect maybe to the church today. Do we ever do this? Do we ever exclude people like this? And why? Okay, we, we have a text. We have a certain level of spiritual understanding in here. Do, do we do these things still? And, and why? Joe? I think it all goes back to entitlement there, too. I mean, you have people who say, you know, women aren't allowed to preach here. Gay people aren't allowed to attend here. We don't like homeless people. We don't like if you've got piercings here, here, and here, no tattoos. Like, you just have people who. Um, want to exclude so they feel better. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit of an identity crisis. We define ourselves by our borders, and Jesus is trying to flip it to define them by the core of what we are. Very well said, actually, uh, both of you. Um, it just seems so easy to do, though, to, to create the, the borders that become like impenetrable. And this goes back, by the way, to the earlier question that we had at the very beginning, or at least the earlier thought that we struggled with. Uh, when has something gone too far? When has a belief that has become the belief, because nobody said anything, when has it gone too far? And do you think Jesus is advocating just for tradition or just for believing alone in, in any of this that we've read today? Perhaps there are some traditions, right, or some denominations that focus more on the tradition, more on the liturgy, and perhaps there are other churches, right, that seem to focus, well, just believe, right, check, you said the prayer, you're in. It seems here that we have an example of Jesus definitely not saying that. In fact, it would be hard to imagine this woman as the person who just showed up one time, said the prayer, and left. That's not the picture of faith that we're given here by this person who just believes. You see, some people would take this and say, well, look, all you need is belief. But there's a lot to her. I mean, she's coming with a lot more. And, and the sincerity and the depth of her belief is more than just casual. Yes, John? But nothing in that story says anything about, like, the belief that most of our churches talk about today, like salvation. I mean, what happened in this story is her daughter was healed. We have no idea if she then changed her life, 
or did anything else, like she got what she came for. Her faith made her daughter work, if you could say it that way. But that's it. Right. We, we, we might say there are two levels here. There's the first level of we have the story here, something occurs. There's probably a lot about the story we don't know. But the second level, of course, is the kind of practical application that we do take from a text. I don't think it's a matter of, of uh, difference between just believing or tradition. I think clearly Jesus is operating here between both poles. He's very comfortable in teaching and, and working within the tradition, yet at the same time, he's very comfortable working in a situation that doesn't involve that. Yeah, we don't know what happens afterwards, right? <laughs> but I don't know that we need to. Melanie, you had your hand raised. I wanted to just say something about when you use the word like advocation, like when Jesus was trying to advocate tradition or Jesus was trying to advocate this or not advocate. I don't think, well, this is my opinion, I don't think he was trying to advocate anything. I think he was just trying to reach the heart of every individual who he encountered with and whatever was the way they were operating or whatever way they were seeing things, like he used that to channel his point. Like with the, with the woman, she didn't know about tradition. She didn't know about the Old Testament and the old law. So he couldn't use tradition in that context. And the same thing with the Pharisees, since they were elevating themselves and they were using the old law and using it in a way that was damaging his different people, he used that to, to basically counteract their motive, like their purposes or what their intentions were. So I think it's more of just like, okay, Jesus is goal and his purpose on earth was to show people that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And you can't use tradition. You can't just use, you know, like your own motivation or anything. It has to be particularly from your heart and he needs to find the root of that through whatever ways you, whatever way you can be reached by. Yeah, yeah, please don't, yeah, I'm not uh, advocating one or the other. But, and just to wrap up here, I think it's a great point, but I think maybe what maybe still bothers some of us is it's one thing to have this understanding that Jesus meets us where we're at, right? But it seems at some level, at least in this part, he doesn't have an interest in meeting her where she's at. Um, but that's something that I'd like for at least to hold on to, or maybe we can discuss that later, because at, at, at some level, right, we're theologizing about what's going on here. But there seems to be an issue here with, yeah, well, he meets people where they're at, but he doesn't even seem to want to meet her. Now, whether that's being, him being provocative or not, I don't know. Maybe if, if you think that that's true, then it doesn't matter. But if you think it's not true, then that might be an issue for you. Okay? Good. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We just thank you for the opportunity to come and to study a word and to struggle and to listen to one another. I just pray that we'll take these things to heart, to mind, um, to action. And I pray that you'll be with us as we finish up worshiping here tonight and as we go out to dinner. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.